This is Smart Politics, and I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we here at PointCast have been trying to help you make sense of what's happening. From the stories we post to the essays we write, it's all geared towards helping you not just stay informed, but towards encouraging you to ask deeper questions, harder questions. And if you've listened to this show before, then you know the questions about foreign policy, war, and violence are all things I've tried to grapple with previously. But war of the kind we're currently seeing is unique for two reasons. On a personal level, I've always been interested in the topic. My dad is a Vietnam veteran, and even as a kid, I wanted to learn everything I could about his time there. I could see the way that it had shaped him as a grown man, and I think that part of my interest stemmed from a desire to understand my dad better. What must Vietnam have been like if it could have such a profound effect on him so many years later? So at first, it was the drier, more technical side of war that I was drawn to. The dates, the weapons, the technology, the kind of stuff they teach you in history class. I remember reading about all the airplanes that had been used throughout the various wars and just finding it so damn fascinating in the way that I think lots of boys probably do. But as I grew older, my interest evolved as I started considering the broader implications of war. War has a way of sharpening our focus and narrowing the issues. There are many things in life that matter, and humans are extraordinarily good at making mountains out of molehills. But what's happening to the Ukrainian people right now is a stark reminder that all suffering is not created equal. Beyond that, war forces us to confront questions of death and suffering directly. We spend much of our time running away from those topics, trying to avoid the difficult moral challenge of what should we do to reduce human tragedy? War demands an answer to that question, though, and it gives us no space to hide. On a historical level, war has been with us from the start. You can go back as far as you wish in history and you'll find it. Humankind has a tragic tendency to find reasons for killing one another. But if war is always going to be with us, then that means every generation has an obligation to think about the questions it raises and seek out answers. So that's what we're going to try to do on this episode. I'm joined by Francine Dash, the boss here at PointCast. And together, we're going to explore at least some of the difficult questions we should all be thinking about right now. Thank you, Francine, for joining me today. And how are you feeling? I am well. I am well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. I always appreciate your insight. Uh, this one's going to be... a uh, a heady one. So uh, I, I hope you bought your, your, your thinking cap. <laughs> I, I hope so too, actually. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's sort of jump right in. Um, to start, you know, we're going to go over some domestic side stuff first. Um, okay. So just in general, though, what was your reaction when you, when you heard the news that Russia had invaded Ukraine? When I, when I first heard the news, I was trying to wrap my head around it because I couldn't actually believe it. I mean, I've gone back and forth because just um, in the Trump administration, there were accusations that this was going to happen by some who had, uh, who were getting intelligence. Um, But it was, 
pushed away and and after a while you want to believe that that's not going to be the case and then there was intelligence when biden got into office that this was going to happen and it wasn't necessarily pushed away in fact biden did kind of kind of you know, uh, try to preempt preemptively let people know this he's lying, something's going to happen. Um, and what we didn't realize is that he was rallying people in the international space to kind of come together because he felt that there needed to be a response. And so when I saw that come together, and then I, I saw immediately saw the people kind of running for their lives, which is what you do when bombs are coming at you or your homeland. It, it struck a chord in me just on a human level, like it, the sadness of it all and how in the world an, an autonomous country can be shaken to its core this way. What, you know, what justification is there for that? Right. And, you know, so I just, I was left in that space and I think- yeah. I'm still kind of there trying to figure out where, what's the end game for this? What's the expectation really? Right, right. You know, you, you mentioned something in your, in your answer there that I didn't want to, it reminded me, Biden, like you said, he, he, was, he had warned about this. He kept sort of saying, like, we're, we're hearing things. But, you know, because of sort of this recent history of intelligence failures, right. uh, weapons of mass destruction, as everybody right. recalls. Of course. Uh, I think there's like a boy who cried wolf thing that that happened here. Mm, yeah, yeah. Where I a lot of people just rolled yeah. their eyes and said, "Oh, here's the intelligence community again trying to start a war. Right. Here's a military industrial complex trying to drag us into a conflict." And we said, "Nothing's going to happen." Or trying to distract from the way we left Afghanistan. Right, right. right. Yeah. The timing was convenient. Uh, I mean, right. the timing was convenient for some people. It was easy right. to think, like cynically, you know. The president had a foreign policy failure and his domestic policy is sort of flagging. They didn't pass their big bill. And all of a sudden, right. he's pointing the finger at evil Russia again. Right. Um, except it turned out that in this case, <laughs> the intelligence community was telling the truth. Uh, and Russia really was and how sort of crazy on the move is that? again. That's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's insane. Uh, my reaction was a lot like yours. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Even as a person who sort of studies history, it was difficult to imagine I mean, we've had things like Serbia, uh, Chechnya, what happened in Crimea, Georgia. We we have had violence in Europe since World War II, but we yeah. hadn't had a situation where one of the great powers was gobbling up a small neighbor. And, you know, we haven't really had the response that we're having right now with Ukraine yeah. from the world and yeah. all of these other spaces. And, yeah. and that's another thing that's really intrigued me is, you know, not that we shouldn't be concerned, but, um, you know, I'm impressed that you know, so many people are concerned about their condition and what's going on and that they're being received well for the most part. Uh, but th- that was another curiosity that this is not necessarily a new thing, but for a lot of people on this scale in Europe, it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of response, I mean, um, how have you felt about our response, not just politically, but even among sort of normal people, how they're talking, reacting on Facebook? I mean, how, right. what is your sort of broad impression? Uh, of their response. You know, my broad impression is that Americans in general think that this is horrendous. They they don't get it. There are pockets of Americans who, um, you know, and I'm not sure exactly where they're coming from, but they're, they're kind of celebratory in the sense that, you know, Russian, particularly Putin stands for something for them. And 
his power move is like their power move. It's it's yeah. it's it's sort of like a fantasy connection for some people. Yes. Um, and and that's as much as I understand of it. But for most Americans, you know, many Americans are trying to figure out ways to help, you know, yeah. trying to send goods over, trying to even going as far as, you know, as as people are cringing at the rising cost of living and the rising cost of the pumps, you know, yeah, I'll pay a little bit more as American. You hear a lot of people say that I'll pay more. I'll do more, any little bit that I can do. And you know, that, that makes you proud as an American, that that's one of those moments when you're like, you know, this is the America that I love. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so you mentioned some of the people though, who had been, before we sort of go to the the second part of that was civilians, you know, Trump's response uh, former President Trump's response initially was like, Putin's a genius for this. Yes. And Mike, and, and we sort of expect, I think, a degree of unpredictability mm-hmm. from President Trump, to put it sort of as politely as possible. Mm-hmm. But like Mike Pompeo was also pretty, pretty laudatory mm-hmm. initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we thought he was at least a more rational, headed thinker. Uh, I mean, when you hear something like that from a former Secretary of State, someone whose who's job it was to directly engage with issues like these right um i mean how does that make you feel about sort of a potential return for some of these people to office but also sort of how does it make you look back at their time where they were where they were there because something i've struggled with is when i see someone like mike pompeo being very you know offering praise for something like this it makes me look at his time in office as secretary of state and wonder like were you working yeah, on our like, behalf? <laughs> well, it makes you wonder if we had a hand in helping to set the stage. Right? right. That That's what those responses make me think. Like, were we as diligent as we should have been in protecting American interests? And mind you, Ukraine had, had fallen into American interests. You know, we had right. an agreement, you know, of course, signed by Russia as well, but there, there is an agreement that we're all supposed to be playing by. And, you know, Secretary of State, President, we're, they're supposed to uphold those right. agreements. And right. those responses are in direct contrast, in direct yes. contrast to the agreement, which states that we would not support any aggression toward Ukraine right. or its autonomy. It's very right. clearly spelled out. Right. So, yeah, it, it makes you wonder, you know, how much of this, when it all shakes out, will be, you know, put on our laps? Yeah. Well, especially because, you know, you, I think some people, I think it's worth remembering. Um, the, the thing that he was first uh, impeached for in the House was the Ukraine thing. I think people, have, I think people well, remember, yeah. but it, because yes, like there's this, been a million news stories since then. Like it's been a well, hundred years since he was. I remember over that. <laughs> I remember that it was. It was. It was a weird thing, really. It was one of those asking of a favor of a yep. foreign country yep. to investigate the current president, and right. um, I just thought. And the thing that was being held up was security assistance. That was the thing he was using as the as the sort of blackmail was trying to hold back their security assistance that right. was supposed to protect them from Russia. So now you look at this and you go, "What the." Right. What the, what the heck? And, you know, <laughs> and they currently have frustrations with our responses are or the lack of responses. They probably see it as Zelensky Correct. possibly sees it. But 
I, you know, I can't blame them for wondering that and, and piecing this all together from the ground. Yeah. They probably have a very different perspective. They don't, yeah. you know, because they don't see people, regular everyday people who are having a hard time affording getting to work, you know, paying more at the pump. They don't see these different groups putting together care packages, sending it over, right. or getting involved in Red Cross or other efforts trying to get over support or money or what have you to these uh, refugees uh, who are crossing the border uh, to save their lives. They're not seeing that. What they're seeing are bombs coming exactly. out. They're seeing blown out buildings. Exactly. And they're remembering the connection that they had with someone who was supposed to be there to protect them. They right. know Russia wasn't going to protect them. This isn't right. like outside of the character, <laughs> right. but right. American, uh, our, our, the American connection, there was a greater expectation in my opinion. Right. And, right. and for them, I don't think those expectations have been met. Now, I think that's fair. So, so, so let's circle back again. So what you had mentioned. Um, so obviously we're, we're getting reports uh, continually that like inflation is rising year over year faster than it has in, you know, 30 years. Every month is like, this is the highest it's been since the eighties or the seventies. So it is, right. it just keeps going up for people. Right. So is it fair to, to sort of ask uh, Americans to, to pay more at a time where they're already feeling the squeeze? You know, I, I think that there's a couple of things going on here. For one, I think that this is a great time for Republicans to kind of explore an opportunity to drill in areas where we said we weren't going to drill in, right? Yep. Because there's the argument that we have all of the resources that we need, potentially notwithstanding the huge years of process to actually refine oil that Correct. part has been left out but you know there there wouldn't be a go dig a hole get some oil and all of a sudden all the pumps are full it's not it doesn't quite exactly work like that uh then there's the other side of people uh, saying you know this is a great time to bump up the the manufacture of vehicles that are not dependent on these sorts of things or look at alternative energy sources across the board so that we're not dealing with any of this. But the facts are we're only using like three to 5% of our oil comes from Russia. Yep. It's a very, very small percentage. Yep. So some of these arguments fall flat with me and even the prices yeah. at the pump don't totally add up to me. No, I think they there's don't. something else going on. We're only getting three to 5% of our oil from a country. You mean to say our 95% is just nothing like, right. 4% has more power over 95, 96%. Yeah. Is that what we're yeah. saying? So, yeah. I mean, there's something else here. And as far as Americans pulling their weight at the pump, so to speak, I, I think that we need to, I, I'm not saying there's price, price gouging. I'm not saying there's uh, people not taking <laughs> advantage of hiking up the price on already you know, current supply, but I, I do wonder you know, yeah. if we're not kind of taking advantage of the situation uh, here. It's fair. It's fair to wonder. Um, <laughs> gas price went up like thirty cents in one week here in Indianapolis. Yes, uh, I paid like three ninety nine the uh, last weekend when we went to see the Batman. Mm -hmm. This week for work, I paid like four thirty. I said, "Well, I said thirty. So that can't yeah. that can't that can't totally be that can't totally be right right that that's oil supply exactly so i <laughs> i personally think that yes americans are willing in general to help they lend a helping hand you know with all of our faults 
Oh, Americans love helping people. We even have songs. We do. You know, we yeah. just love, love, love to help people. And that's that's yeah. one of the great things about being an American. But I think there's a point where you have to ask, are we taking advantage of that American spirit? Yes. And and uh, we need to look at oil prices, not just uh, digging up more or making more cars that people can't afford yet, but <laughs> really looking at life right now. Right. And the burdens that are being placed on wallets right now. Is it fair? Yeah. And, and you know, what you mentioned is, is, is the spirit of sort of American exceptionalism that we can do it. But you do sort of wonder, like, is someone trying to take advantage of that spirit? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it, it does sort of feel like, you know, and this has been something that's been building while we've seen inflation rise for all this time. There's always been this idea. There's been this people wondering, are we being taken advantage of? Like, mm-hmm. we know there yeah. were supply chain disruptions, but really? Right. Is and, it this bad? And right. now it's just sort of, once again, like, I don't know. There's a nagging part, like you said, that goes, I don't know, man. This feels yeah. excessive. It feels excessive. <laughs> I think we definitely need to review the receipts on this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, that was the easy section. So that was the warm-up. <laughs> the domestic stuff was the warm-up. Uh, so now we're going to go. We're going to get to the stuff that's not so fun. So uh, okay. this next section is about war crimes. So okay. uh, war is brutal, uh, most of all on civilians, which is why there are rules against certain acts. Uh, but as war has gone on, there's increasing evidence of war crimes being committed. From the bombing of a hospital to the attacking of people trying to evacuate, there's been a shocking brutality to the Russian approach so far. And international observers from a number of countries are calling it out. So, like I said, we're going to get to the thorny stuff, the tricky stuff, the hard questions here. So, how should the commission of war crimes, which, again, it looks increasingly like this is happening, um, should that change our response, like, right now? Um, that's a difficult one, because we're in the throes of war on right. both sides, you know, right. with Ukrainians appearing to suffer the most really because it's in their country that we see the bombing uh, and you would think that we can just march in there but what does that mean you yeah. know do we go arrest putin now or do we do as some senators have called uh call for people to kill him yeah. <laughs> assassinate him do we yeah. what do we do do we what does what does that response look like i, I think that we're like a lot of countries uh, our first order of business is to create safe spaces for yeah. these people fleeing the danger and hoping that more humanitarian paths are created so that more people can get out. You know, yeah. we, we've heard a lot of stories of, of people uh, being killed, some people killed in the street. And then we heard some stories about people, you know, Russians showing up with bread and food and, right. and, and this sort of, it's all kinds of things going on. But right now, there's no way for us to address these war crimes without us actually entering the war. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I, I, you're right, but I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the hot seat though. I'm going to put you on the hot seat. So <laughs> Last time Russia carried out a war like this, it was the uh, it was the second Chechen war in the in the 90s. And there was a city, I believe, is Grozny. And uh, to end the war, they carried out a five week 
a bombing campaign of Grozny. It's estimated that like six, five, six, seven, eight thousand civilians were killed in about five weeks. And afterwards, um, the UN, NATO, one of those bodies said that it was the most destroyed city on Earth. I mean, they leveled it. Over the course of five weeks, they just absolutely leveled the, the city with their long-range artillery, which is the modern and sort of historical strength of the Russian army is their, their long-range artillery. Um, we've seen that artillery sort of arrive on the scene recently in Ukraine. It, it was bogged mm-hmm. down in Italy. It appears to have arrived now. We mm-hmm. are seeing an increase in shelling. Mm-hmm. So if they were to carry out that sort of campaign, on Ukrainian cities, the kind that they carried out on Grozny, the kind where we start seeing thousands of civilian deaths in, in a really short burst of time. I mean, do, would that warrant a military response? Because what they did in Grozny was a war crime on just an incredible scale. I mean, they were indiscriminately killing civilians. It wasn't mm-hmm. just indiscriminate murder of civilians for five straight weeks. Mm-hmm. If we saw that, mm-hmm. I mean, should that... Again, it's, it's <laughs> one of those things, if we are not prepared to go to war ourselves with Russia, yeah. which is essentially what you're asking, if yeah. we're not prepared to go to war and everything that that would mean for us, yeah, uh, because it would be total war. This is yeah. not, yeah. you know, we're going to cut off your supply of toilet paper. No, this is right. total yep. war. And total war, we don't really understand on on the uh, civilian level, we don't really understand what that what that no, means. No, we don't. Okay. No, we don't. Um, we have, you know, uh, not just American soil, but we have uh, foreign alliances, foreign and uh, the, the words escape me. But we have interests in other parts yeah. of the world that that they may go after that right. affects our sovereignty that affect our security and a a lot more would be at stake than I think we realize. I think what has to happen is we have to rely on a worldwide alliance of people or countries rather that see what's going on. And Europe, I believe, since this is their front yard, needs to lead the charge in this space. You know, I feel like, are we having a World War One, World War Two conversation all over again? It's, I mean, <laughs> yes, we are. I mean, unfortunately, we, we are. Uh, I mean, and so sort of as an add on then to this, do chemical weapons change this? Because chemical mm-hmm. weapons, I think to people, they imply not just death, they they imply a degree of suffering yes. and almost torture. All of that this is, is borderless. Beyond. You know, chemical warfare yeah. goes borderless, right? So that's it, the thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if chemical weapons were used, I mean... I, I I I don't think even then we would intervene for a variety of reasons, but uh, I think I, it would be I think the pressure air, would build. I think airspace. A, I think the airspace initiative, securing the airspace, would probably be as far as we'd be willing to go, and then we would expect European forces to enter the theater, yeah, uh, on the ground, and because you know there's much more at stake for Europe. Right. In this in this space. Yeah. Yeah. And as much as our heart aches for the Ukrainian people, you know, we can't you know, we talk about American ex- exceptionalism. Well, let's just talk about very briefly what that means. It almost is a manifest destiny, like somehow America's different, set apart, is special. You know, the rules right. apply to us differently, but it also puts us in this unique. We're the father of the world kind of space and that when the world behaves we go out and we set it right irregardless of our own failings right we go and we correct our sins we correct our sins in other spaces and that 
you know, and other countries feed into that, even though they yeah. criticize us for it, they feed into that. And what we have to fend off is we have to fend that off and we have to call other very rich, very powerful companies to the fore and say, hey, you know, you're calling me over to help fix your house. Right. And you right. live in it. <laughs> right. Right. Like, what's going on here? I mean, what's the, I can't even begin uh, to help you until you start. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Can you can you do something? Can you supply some of the supplies you, at least? Exactly. Uh, so I think there's a lot more. We need to make space for Europe to yeah. answer the call of Ukrainians, yeah. their neighbors, their friends on that on the ground there before yeah. we just run in and, and apply an American solution that may not even fit. So you mentioned earlier, like arresting Putin for war crimes, and I want to. Uh, we're going to follow up on it now. <laughs> One day the war will end. Absolutely. And how do you handle war crimes after no. a war? like, like if you go, this person committed a war crime, right? And that's right. fine and dandy. Mm -hmm. But like, you can't arrest Vladimir Putin. You can't arrest his generals. I mean, I guess. Well, if they I said mean, foot in your country, you could, but like, you, could, you wouldn't. Yeah. You arrest their money when people are that powerful. You arrest their resources. You arrest their connections. And yeah. I don't mean arrest literally. I mean kind of what we're doing right now. Yeah. You know, we we put the squeeze on them. But what we've done in, in recent years, if we look at how we handled other folks we consider terrorists, is we take small groups of, of military forces, sometimes mixed with other countries, and we, we quote unquote, go after them, you know? We, yeah. We send in uh, go right. after them teams, and sometimes right. that that even Seal includes teams. their their. Sometimes it even includes some of their own people. Yeah. So I, I don't really I don't want to predict what that might look like, uh, but I I just know that for a country as powerful as Russia, you just don't go knocking on the front door. It's not, right. Done that. Right. <laughs> right. So it, it'll be interesting to see how we respond. We do have options, but I'm really more curious as to how Europe is going to respond because right now there's been yeah. a, lot of, a lot of wringing of hands uh, yeah. and, and I'd love to hear from Europe. You know, what is your response yeah. to, to what's going on? What are you, yes. you going to do? What are the next steps? It's difficult to imagine that Europe uh, goes back to having a, a congenial relationship with Putin. Like at the end of all this, whatever happens, well, it's difficult to imagine that they're like, okay, it's over. Let's you know, shake it's, hands and it's business right. as usual. It's difficult to imagine that Putin will be finished when he's done with Ukraine. I mean, was not Finland yes. not a part? Uh, that yes. was not Finland. I mean, this can go on and on and on. Yes. And why stop there? You know? Those are also non-NATO countries. For instance, Finland. Finland is a non-NATO country. So the whole Article Five stuff that we will be does not to, uh, does not does even not apply. apply. Does not even uh, apply. So, so there are some bigger countries that but that to, are feeling the heat. <laughs> but to be fair, I don't think that this is a NATO respecting president putin i don't know that you know i think he laughs in the face of american agreements because yep. when people feel that they're on a righteous charge or a righteous mission uh they ignore certain things and i you know not to try to get in his head too much but it looks like the evidence is showing that he is ignoring at the very least the agreement that they signed back in 94 yes. 90 yes. whatever yes. Uh, yep. the, that to not wage yep. war to oh. to not 
Now, granted, there was a different yeah. president in place, and maybe once he was But out, he doesn't care about that. Putin doesn't care about this. Buda, you're referring to the Budapest Memorandum, and he just does not right. care about that at all. Right. Um, but this whole thing is, I, I, I ask because, it, you know, if you highlight that someone is doing something horrific and something mm-hmm. that you call a crime, that suggests that there is a penalty on the other side. But mm-hmm. war crimes, there typically is not a penalty on the other side. So, well, it's and, a and this is true thing. even for us. Like, well, yeah, yeah. We did look, some things. We had PMCs do some terrible things during Iraq and Afghanistan. Famously, right. Blackwater engaged yes. in some just hor- horrifying behavior. I was about to go uh, there. <laughs> so they committed war crimes. Yes. But then, like, if the international body says, "Well, bring them to you know to court, put them in the Hague," like we don't respect the international courts either. We ignore them. Right. So, right. like, uh, how does that? shape this conversation the fact that we don't actually view these bodies as legitimate when it comes to punishing our own why should well, that that goes back to the american exceptionalism right we'll, we'll right. punish our own we're we're right. above that you know right. your little courts or whatever we got right. this and we get them back over here and there's slaps on the wrist don't do it you right. know that sort of thing you know there were cries in in a couple of different places i want to say was it kenya someplace where we yeah. we did some we did some stuff right and yeah. You know, they they wanted these. They knew who it was. They wanted. And and what did we do? How did we respond? So I think that it's difficult for us to impose on others what we ourselves don't honor. Correct. Correct. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. If we don't respect these bodies, why would anybody else? Right. Um, Right. All right. So then now let's talk sort of about the future. We'll wrap up talking about the future of of this war, the future of the sanctions, future of, of war in general. So, and as you mentioned, you know, in lieu of military action, Western countries uh, have imposed these devastating economic sanctions on Russia. Alongside that, their societies have also taken action on their own, uh, with businesses and companies withdrawing their money and support. So, taken together, these actions have just crippled uh, Russia and really you know, turn the screws on, on their citizens more than anything else. So at a broad level, uh, should this sort of action be viewed as, as warfare? I mean, destroying a country's economy, uh, it's not like firing bullets war, but it's something. Well, let's break it down and see what it, (laughs) what, let's break it down and see what, what impact it has. Let's start with, okay, so you, you shut down access to resources, you freeze accounts, you remove uh, investments, you remove the ability to transact business or to even go to certain countries. Um, And the, the initial impact of a lot of this usually doesn't hit the rich people first, it hits the people, the common people. And what that does is it, it forces the common people to in whatever system they're in to figure out a way to put apply pressure on their leadership to stop yeah. the actions that are hurting them. So it creates this domino effect from within as well as, you know, whatever uh, effect you have outside of the country. And what it's supposed to do is supposed to uh, eat away at their internal influence and right. cause disruption, right? Right. And that disruption should distract them enough from stopping their action. That's what we want them to do. We want them to stop what they're doing. The question is, when will that happen? How far do we have to go in order for that 
to happen. Right. And if that is what the expectation is, some people can call it a form of warfare because it is yeah. happening in the theater of war. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 it is a tool. You know, all tools in war are not guns and bullets. Correct. Right? Correct. And and so it is a tool that can be ec- economics, money, research. These are viable tools to use yeah. against one's enemy. Yeah. And so, yes, I think that it can be, in this case, seen as an act of warfare. I guess the question then goes to whether or not that technically puts us in the war. Yeah. So so you, you said, you know, you want to influence uh, the country's behavior. You want to influence them to stop their actions. Would we? I mean, if we were doing something that the international community didn't like, and they uh, carried out economic warfare on us, would would we stop what we were doing? Well, our history tells tells me no, we would. Right, we, Americans <laughs> would find a, we'd double a down. We would double down. We work around. Right. We we have great stories of resilience where we didn't. Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> including right. the formation of this country. Correct. So, yes, we so, are stiff necked. So we we would not yield um, to that, um, you know, for whatever reason. But the, the, it's just a part of our culture yeah. to not do so. So to me, it's fair to expect that there are others in the world who may do the exact same thing in their country. Like, yeah. how dare you try to influence? I mean, look, R- Russian history does not suggest that they are less stiff-necked than we are. It Let's really just say, doesn't. It really uh, doesn't. That I their think, leaders are not any less belligerent than our leaders. Let's just say. That's why, <laughs> that and one of the reasons why I think we fear going to war with Russia. Right. 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 Because, you know, <laughs> When it's sort of like, you know, you're in a street fight with somebody who won't stay down. You know? Right. <laughs> they keep right. getting back up. <laughs> yeah. It's like looking at a dark, it's like looking at a dark mirror. We're like, yeah. these are two belligerent, stiff-necked people. Right. Who, if they right. ever fight each other, right. it's not gonna go good. It's not gonna neither go one of them well. acknowledges any sort of like restraint or we should quit. Exactly. It's not, exactly. It's not, not either one of our DNAs. But it right. does make you wonder if these sanctions are just gonna if they're gonna cause him to double down. Right, um, right. If he responds and they respond the way we would, right, right, uh, they will be painful. Mm-hmm. But he will just ask his people to pay the cost, mm-hmm. and he will double down. No, no, no. I don't think there's down. any asking. Listen, he's sh- he's shifting what the media can and cannot do. You have media journalists right. fleeing the country, afraid for their lives. Okay, this is really a turning back to a different yep. kind of Russia. So I don't think there's going to be any asking. Right. I think that, you know, you know, this former KGB agent, if you will, has a very militaristic way of governing. Yep. And you have a, a, a command of leadership that you don't question. And certainly the commoners are not going to question his leadership, his authority. So I don't think there will be any asking. I certainly think that there will be doubling down, as you say. Right. Um, and I, I also think we expect that. We do expect that. But we do feel as though we have to go through these steps in order to justify whatever else we may have to do. Right, right. To give ourselves a little bit of cover or to say, well, we tried. You know, yes. you do this thing even if you think it won't ultimately work. Which Absolutely. does raise some interesting questions of its own. But right. so let's look, let's look forward uh, to the end. Mm-hmm. So like I mentioned earlier, eventually the war will end. Win, lose, draw, whatever happens, it will end eventually. Right. Should the sanctions keep going afterwards? 
And if, it, you know, because I've seen people call, we should continue sanctioning them for 10 years afterwards. Um, but if you continue the sanctions even afterwards and you make it clear you're going to, mm-hmm. then what impetus does Putin have to do anything other than level Ukraine? Because he's well, going to be punished no matter what. Right. And, and you know what? <clears throat> and he, he knows that this is a do or die. Um, I think at the very least, we should stop importing their oil. That should yeah. just be forever. We should yeah. never import any more oil from Russia. They, they should never be in a position again to manipulate our gas prices, even though, again, as yep. I said, I, I have questions about the justification of those price hikes. Um, and I think that because he has committed war crimes, sanctions may be seen as a way of punishing him in lieu of actually uh, bringing him before like a tribunal, for instance, yeah. or, yeah. you know, it, it may be seen as a way to, um, I don't want to say keep him in line, but remind him of, you know, how far he cannot go with the rest right. of the world. But I think the only way it will have an, a true impact is if the, the West, I mean, collectively, not just the United States, it does it together. You know, yes. it, you, you, it has to be one collective fist. Yes. It can't be these individual fingers because he's just going to break them off one by one. Right. So does it worry you? I mean, do you worry about the return to sort of a Cold War type scenario between oh, us we, and Russia? Listen, we're already there. We've been there. We've I mean, been in a Cold War. It's, this, they, they've been, there's been, since the election that they were involved in. Yes. Okay, we've been there. When we found proof of that, regardless of what some Americans want to say that it didn't happen, it happened. There was proof was put out there. If people want to see it, there uh, they, yes. they can see yes. it. Um, we are already, we've fooled ourselves. As long as you have a leader in place like Putin, who has a militaristic tie to both the past and a way of governing, right? We're going to be in a space where we can never truly and completely trust. Russia. They can't be our true partners. But that's terrifying, right? I mean, because you it's know, a reality. Okay. It's, it sort is of a reality. Like, it's sort of like those neighbors on the street that you yes. know aren't right, that you never yes. engage. Okay. But how should how should we, how should people, how should our politics respond to this? I mean, the last time we did this dance with them, it led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, you know, right. the world was dangerously close. To, we came dangerously close to ending everything for everybody. Um, and so there is like a reason why we have tried to pivot away from sort of Russia phobia, Russophobia. There's a reason we've tried because of the reality that our two countries alone, like just taking us with no one else included, possess the power to more or less end all humanity. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And I, we can't I, ever really be and a purely adversarial relationship with them because the danger is, and it's not just from their side. I mean, look, mm-hmm, uh, people mm-hmm. who have heard us plenty of times before know I have no love loss for former President Trump. There's always a chance that we also could elect like a madman. So that's that concerns me more uh, <laughs> because of because of the bridge that was built to not only Putin but to. Uh, uh, was it Kim Jong Un? Correct. Uh, yes. So uh, all to leadership in the world that leads in a way that goes against 
who we are as Americans it goes against right. the, the democracy that we say that we're for. I don't completely understand what the strategy was there, but I will say moving forward, we have to keep our eyes on Russia and we have to look at ways to peel, to pick away at their influence in the world. Right. Yeah. They, they go to places and they put down a flag and they're really good at putting on a on a show of strength in certain places. And when necessary, they'll bring out the bread and water. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. We have to show. Let me correct myself. Europe, <laughs> as well as everybody else, has to show up. So it can't just be americans being exceptional in a space with russia russia is a threat to the world the world needs to respond in kind in that way there's too many people hiding too many countries rather hiding behind the american flag yet are quietly criticizing (laughs) right right americans so i personally think that you know we need to americans need to force a worldwide response worldwide response to Russia and not allow this to go unattended to. But we also, at the same time, we're going to have to be ready and prepared to answer to our own crimes. Uh, Yes, we absolutely are. Our crimes in those spaces in order for people to respect our voice uh, when it comes to rallying them in this space. So you talked about the response. And I I mentioned this sort of in my lead into this section. So, you know, previously... Uh, only nations could cripple nations like that was a power exclusively held by government Mm -hmm. um but international trade and multinational corporations like we now see that like companies can actually just go above and beyond and outside of a government and completely like companies can destroy countries just as effectively as a government can that is crazy isn't it right (laughs) this has some implications like what implications does this have because this is a really new in the course of human history, this is an actually new recent development. Even in World Wars One and Two, we hadn't seen the rise of the multinational corporation like mm-hmm. we like we mm-hmm. do now. Um, we had had things like banana republics where countries, you know, had 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 screwed where companies had screwed around, right. but they had never tried to destroy like a big country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they, it's one thing to screw around with like some South American countries, no disrespect, well, but it's one thing to screw around with a small country. Right. It's another thing. For corporations to band together and go, because Joe Biden didn't call for these companies to do this. Mm-hmm. He didn't ask them to. Mm-hmm. They they face some sort of internal pressure. They face some sort of like social media pressure. Right. And they just decided on their own. Like no one asked Amazon to not deliver packages. <laughs> no one asked right, Netflix, right, like right. no more Netflix <laughs> and chill in Russia. <laughs> Guess you don't get to do that anymore, do you? Yeah, that's off the menu. That's off. That's all the they decided that. But this yeah. has big implications because you know, one, yeah, because one, uh, who holds the whip? Uh, if the companies right. can cripple your country, who holds the whip then? Right, they could do that to you too. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I think that it's it's. It's admirable in this case, right? Because it works right. in our favor. But right. what happens when it doesn't? Corporations right. are so, re- like we talked about the theater of war, the world wars before, you know, we just really didn't have the opportunity in the same way, you know, right. unless you talk about financing or banking or what have you. And there was also a different sense of honor when it came yes. to war uh, that 
you know, the government called on you to do a victory garden. So you did that. Or right. you did this. So you're right. that, you know, so the government does have a history of calling on corporations to do their part. But you're you're right. I didn't hear a call out to McDonald's no. or to or any of these other places yeah. to to stop business. Yeah. In in Russia. But this is all on them. So these corporate citizens are now playing their hand and showing us how powerful right. they are in this space. And again, you know, that can work multiple ways. What happens yes. when we have another travesty in this country, whether it's social justice or what have you, right. and a company that provides us televisions or whatever, they decide, you know, until you get your act together, America, you know. I mean. It, it, so it could, my, I would be looking at, you know, Companies are free to operate as long as they follow the laws in place for how they yes. do business. But it it is a the implications are you know a little bit you know <laughs> you know how how far can this go? Where where can this right. can these same companies punish us from within? Will Amazon uh, decide that hey, shutting down, no more no more delivery? I mean, they almost certainly could. Or no we more like delivery? They wouldn't. Too. Right. But as their business expands internationally and we become a smaller part of their profile, that gives them the ability to like act against us. Not to say that they would, but they would gain the capacity to if they if they wanted to. And that's actually the freedom of doing business. We have a free market. Yes. Right. Yes. And, you know, businesses do this to businesses all the time. Correct. Right. Correct. Um, So this is not necessarily a new play. It's just we're not used to seeing it necessarily ah. in, in this large of a theater in this way. Yeah. Right. Like you said, yeah. there have been smaller things here or there, but this is a this is a big deal. This Again, is one that will make uh, me take notice for a long time. They didn't ice out Syria when Assad was, you know, committing likely war crimes against his own people in the Syrian civil war. They didn't ice out Russia over Crimea or Chechnya. They didn't ice out us over Iraq and Afghanistan and whatever the hell we were doing. So they have just, I don't know if it's a combination of, I don't think they've advanced morally. I think what's happened is that people on the outside have, have gotten better at generating pressure on companies. We see this every time there's like a big controversy, like, that's like what I, I was remember, about to I say. I remember Amy, yeah. Amy and Christian Cooper, Central Park. The she called yes, the, the cops yeah, on her. Yeah. You know, they convinced her company to fire her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and and that, that's what I was about to say. I think companies have been trained, particularly in the last several years, with all of the racial uprising from George yep. Floyd to to the Cooper incident and the Central Park with the dogs, yep. unleashed dog. Um, and and the calling the cop on the yep. Uh, yep. African American man, I think companies are recognizing that not only do they have the power, but some of them feel they have the responsibility yes. to stand up and say something. Like yes. we can't be silent as corporate citizens. And right. I, like I said before, I think there's something admirable about that. But you also have to wonder how far this is going to go. And and if it goes so far, you know, America's really good at making up a law on the fly. <laughs> well, you know, there will be a cease and desist somewhere. You know, that's the thing. So we've seen some of that this time. You know, I don't know if people, I don't know if you saw, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, the UK, the British government basically just snatched the Chelsea soccer team football. Oh, yes. For those, that's of, you, right. for those of you who insist it be called football. Yes, yes. They snatched the Chelsea football team <laughs> to away from their Russian to owner. Soccer. Yeah, to They just soccer. snatched it away and yeah. told the team that they would no longer be allowed to sell tickets 
outside of games that they've already, already sold said. Yeah, for. let's be clear. They're still in operation. Yeah. They can still pay salaries to their staff. Yeah. But the ownership connection, they're basically isolated right. on an island. They cannot grow anymore. They right. can't buy or sell players. They can't right. do any of the normal things. They can only status quo this thing if merchandise out. is sold the no no amount of it can go back to the team no mo- none of it um, you know it's like freezing their functionality yes. and without you know yeah th- they didn't want to not have people be paid because a lot of those people they live there they work there it's right there it's part of their economy right this is the national sport <laughs> all right it's their national <laughs> Nationally. So, yeah, that's a that was a very interesting story. Yes. I heard that come about. Well, and I think about it because you mentioned like governments can just do things on the fly. And I go, yes. I don't think anyone imagined that the British government would snatch away Chelsea. Oh, yeah. I don't think like, well, what if we do? What are you going to do? Well, we're going to come to court because we've also banned you from coming into the country. So you can't even show up for your court date. <laughs> you so. can't even shut up. Like, for oh. that. Right. So we are doing that with properties and real estate a lot. Right. Here. We're right. just we're just shutting it down. And right. it's really showing Americans how much economic influence international uh, countries such as yes. Russia, for us to not trust them as much as we say it's amazing the economic footprint i'm not just talking about that little bit of oil we get from them i'm talking yep. about the the investment overall in american companies and, and homes and communities uh, and how that actually impacts a lot of a lot of condos, a lot of townhomes, a lot of New York properties that right are not now, lived in a lot. We're live we're, oh. we're dealing with a housing shortage, right? You see where right. I'm going. Right. Dealing yep. with housing shortage. We're dealing with rising housing costs. And we yep. have people owning huge swaths of property, not even occupied in yeah. prime living yeah. areas. I don't know. Got questions. I got you questions. got questions. All right. Okay. So last question. Yes. Big one. <laughs> saving a big one for last of course so how should mutual defense packs work so mm-hmm. i'll pre- I'll, I'll i'll sort of preface this i mentioned this before we started recording to you mm-hmm. um i obviously have a piece that's on our i have an essay on our on our on our site now where i mm-hmm. cover some of this but um world war one started due to mutual defense packs so the idea that mutual defense pacts can prevent a, a broad war is not historically accurate. Sometimes they can. Yeah, so to go into the details. Yeah, that, so really go into the details. So for people who don't know, World War One started uh, Austria, Hungary, and Serbia. Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated by Serbian nationals, and Austria, Hungary was backed by Germany for a mutual defense pact. And Germany more or less gave the green light for for them to do what they felt was necessary to get back at Serbia. So they declared war on Serbia. Serbia was backed uh, in another mutual defense pact by, I want to say it was Germany, uh, Great Britain, and I think Russia. Well, not Germany, Great Britain, France, and Russia. So when Austria-Hungary attacked Serbia with with the backing of Germany, this triggered the mutual defense from the other three big countries. This is how World War I started because two small countries uh, got into a, a squabble and because of the nature of mutual defense and a, a complicated network of mutual defense, it just dragged everybody else in. Um, so as opposed to preventing – so the idea was that, well, no one would screw with these small countries because the big boys will, will light you up. Except what happened 
is that the big boys got dragged into a war because the little guys had a little guy problem. Uh, now, obviously, look, historically, there had been some tensions between the various nations already, but the idea was that the mutual defense pacts would prevent the exact thing that they ended up starting. Um, so when people look at things like the Article 5 in NATO and the mutual defense, I think they should actually be aware these things can lead to broad war, not not prevent them. Right, right. And, and that Article 5, I believe, basically says you pick on one, you pick on all of us. Yeah. We, yeah. we all showing up, you know. Yeah, so. and as I mentioned in my piece, and we had a poll about this on our Facebook page, this covers a number of countries. I mentioned Iceland on our Facebook page, a country of 350,000 people. Uh, if, if I don't know, hypothetically, it's crazy hypothetical. If Russia invaded Iceland, are we really going to go to nuclear, like potential nuclear war over 350,000 people? Because that's actually... That's what the you, agreement you, you says. Know, <laughs> right. You have, you know, you have Montenegro, you have right. Estonia, you have right. Luxembourg, you have all these very tiny countries. Right. And World War One started because two tiny countries dragged in all the big boys. You know, there lies the challenge. I think because these agreements jump past diplomacy. Right. right. They, yep. they, yep. they jump past yep. bringing people to the table to resolve their own issues. That therein lies the problem. You know, yep. I, I, I didn't see any steps, graduated steps toward the finality of what war brings. Yes. All I saw, saw is you pick on one of mine, you pick on all of mine, you know, yep. we all show. And, and it's sort of like, you know, almost a gang mentality. Kind of, yes. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's not yeah. about, you know, civil countries, civil leadership coming to the table to resolve conflict or to share better ways for maintaining right. and securing each other's own boundaries and right. and they don't even have to like each other right right well but you know no, what it, what it reminds sorry, me of is well you know i laugh i sit her laugh because when you described it as a gang i said to me actually the the, the maybe more point on is like your your little sibling yes like you gotta fight if your little brother fights you gotta fight but what if he's wrong what it if he started it yeah why i gotta yeah. fight because mm -hmm. his little dumb butt done run around picking on somebody. Now I gotta fight. Now if I come home and you're like, "Well, you didn't fight. Now you in trouble too." I didn't start the fight. It's the the family treaty, right? Everybody, right, every right. every everybody has heard of this in some degree, so we can relate to what it means. Right. But we can also relate <laughs> whether we realize it or not to the implications. There's this nonstop <laughs> fighting, right? right? That destroys more right. than it saves. And like I the think that, and the toys. exactly. And I <laughs> think what treaties should be meant to do is to save us from conflict that could destroy us. Right. And because we don't see that language, long story short, I believe that moving forward, we're going to be smarter than that because we're acting like that right now with Ukraine. Right. right. We're baby right. stepping our way around that theater of war because we're trying to de-escalate. Correct. Right? So instead of Correct. just putting those steps together and, and maybe the stakes were so high that we said whatever we, we did, went into pillow talk mode just to get Ukraine to get rid of its yeah. nuclear weapons. Yeah. But the, the reality should be that we're here in this space, in this way to help prevent war. Yeah. However, 
if these steps are not respected in this way, then at some point we are going to have to accept the fact that entering into a treaty could lead to us going to war. Yeah, no, that's a fascinating point. I'm happy you brought that up because you're right. The fact that we are not obligated to defend them is what has allowed us to approach the edge but not go over yet. Right. It has allowed us to hammer Russia and their economy and their leaders without going that that final step. Uh, mm-hmm. But a mutual defense pact would actually have already put us there. Um, and that makes me really wonder, you know, like I said, you know, I've said before, I am a student of history and knowing the history of World War One and looking at where NATO, I said, you know, I said, well, I don't know, guys. Being a student of war history yep. in, the, in the recent world, NATO sounds like a bad idea. Right? Yes. <laughs> OK. Yes. At least <laughs> the, the, the agreements that I've read, it, it sounds yes. like that. And it doesn't seem to lead to uh stability, equal stability across the board. What it does is it secures primarily the higher powers that exist, right. the larger right. countries. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And and the uh, smaller countries are going to be blown to bits, but <laughs> the larger yeah, company we'll be countries. Here. Yeah, we'll be. So I think that's a part of it as well. The nature of treaties uh you know, a lot of there's a lot of talk about these agreements and these mutual yeah. defense pacts and and what they all mean and and we're getting smarter about that. And I think that as American voters, we need to get smarter and, and ask yep. those questions of 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 these U.S. senators and Congress people who are who may be voting on these measures or yeah. may be involved yeah. in these measures. So um, yeah, I, I think that um, <laughs> I think that there, there needs to be a shift in our thinking when it comes to treaties, but also I think that we need to uh, not always lead the, the charge. Right, right, right. And in, in that space in order to, uh, you know, it, it's also a benefit to us and it may not be the answer that people want to hear, but we need to make room for other great countries in this world to rise up yeah. and to participate in resolving the conflict, this war in, yeah. in Ukraine. All right. Well, that's that. That's it. That wasn't too painful, right? Yeah. No, it was <laughs> only a little. Some, some touch, grilling. You, you, you made me think of this morning. You made me think. <laughs> oh, I appreciate good. that. I appreciate um, that. <laughs> so thank you again, Francine, for joining me on, on, on this sort of special episode. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for, for, for making it this far through a heady, thorny, complicated, winding discussion. Uh, right. As the war continues and ends, I'm sure we'll have more to say. We'll have more to write. We'll have more to post. Maybe we'll even have another special episode as these things continue evolving. There, there, there will be much more to do. So as always, uh, I want to encourage you all to continue the discussion on our social media pages, either on Facebook or Instagram. Like all of our shows here, this podcast is brought to you in part by Eliac Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians and pointcast news. To listen to any of our podcasts, you can visit our website at pointcast.news or subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts. Uh, be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and make sure you join us next time. Take care, everybody.